Amen. Well, welcome today. I'm excited to get in the Word together. Um, let me just open us in a word of prayer. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series in Lamentations, and it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Scott said, uh, Pastor Bart's out of town. Quick correction, um, the first Wednesday service isn't this Wednesday, it's in two Wednesdays. So uh, next, not this Wednesday, but the next Wednesday. Um, some of the things we've mentioned thus far in the series is that uh, Lamentations has some really beautiful literary artistry. Uh, so there's this uh, literary device in the Hebrew poetry we find in the Bible at times called an acrostic. And an acrostic is when... Um, each verse, um, so for example, when you come to Lamentations 1, there's 22 verses, there's 22 verses in chapter 2, there's 22 in chapter uh, 4 and 5, and what's happening here is the first verse in the chapter begins with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and then the next verse begins with Beit, and then the third verse, Gimel, until you've worked your way after 22 verses through the Hebrew alphabet. And that's happening in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and 5. Chapter 3 is also a Hebrew acrostic. And you come to chapter 3 and you may say, how can that be? There aren't 22 verses in chapter 3. Well, chapter 3 is a triple acrostic, which means the first three verses begin with Aleph. And the next three, Beit and Gimel. And so after 66 verses, you've worked your way through the entire Hebrew alphabet. Um, we should, I, just, I feel like it's worth just showing these things at times because the Bible's not just an inspired book. It's an inspired book with literary beauty and artistry. Um, and so chapter 3, both thematically and even poetically, is, this, is the center section of the book itself. So let's get into what is probably the darkest and lowest place of the book. <laughs> and that's verses 1 through 20. And we'll, we'll bring some hope. Don't worry. But Let's, let's go low. So, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me. I'm going to read through my Bible, something about a physical Bible. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding, he turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He, and again, this is all God, in case you're wondering. God's doing, done this. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. 
I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on the gravel. What a vivid image. And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness or good is. So I say my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction in my wanderings, the wormwood in the gall. My soul continues it, continually remembers it, and is bowed down within me. C.S. Lewis famously said this, What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because he's good? Have they never been to the dentist? We have this idea that the goodness and kindness of God means he would never dream of inflicting any pain on us ever, right? But he will inflict pain, always for our good, but never from the heart the book of Lamentations will uh, press in to us. He does not afflict from his heart. God doesn't take any joy, any delight in causing pain. That's not his heart, but his heart is our good, and so he will. He will bring us through pain to bring us into places of life. Let me look at verse, let's look at verses 17 and 18 again. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Um, Let's just take a little check-in. I don't know where you guys are at this morning. But I'd like you to think about the state of your own soul Uh, while you're hearing this sermon. So to put you in that frame, let's just put some of the questions that come out of the text before us. How much peace do you feel in your soul these days? Are you mostly happy, sometimes happy, or mostly sad? How much endurance or energy do you have these days? How hopeful are you about the future? And to what extent do you draw your hope from the Lord? I think Pastor Bart shared this other C.S. Lewis quote at the beginning of the series, who wrote, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And one more quote, and then I'm done for a minute here, okay? Uh, Eugene Peterson said this, suffering, even the threat of suffering, I haven't even suffered yet, but I could, right? Can be redemptive. Not all the time, of course, for suffering doesn't always make us better. It often makes us worse. It can make us defiant, bitter, and lonely, but at least it holds out the possibility of being redemptive if we respond rightly to it. There's this fallacy out there that I'm going through tough times, but it's just making me a better person. You know, I wish I could tell you that pain always makes you a better person. I wish I could. Um, Now, it may strengthen you. It might make you a more resilient person. It might make you the type of person who has a capacity to deal with more difficulty and hardship. That might be true. But it doesn't necessarily make you more Christ-like, more responsive to God. In verse 15, the author says that God's filled him with bitterness. I and mean, if you give yourself a, a moment, I'm sure you can think of people who've been traumatized by events in their life, and they live from a place of fear now. People who've been abused, and sadly, they abuse people in similar ways. 
right? I mean, we, we know that quite often hurt people hurt people. And I don't, you don't have to spend much time in the world to know this to be true. So let's not deceive ourselves into thinking that our hardships and losses are doing anything other than making us more self-reliant, more self-absorbed, more fearful, more lonely, more cynical about the world and God. Now, on that pretty moat, um, Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of what it means to suffer well, right? Um, and I could go straight to Jesus, his example, and his teachings on this, and I probably should, but I've just decided for the sake of today to stay here in Lamentations because what if we could listen to somebody, tell us about the depths of their despair and see how their pain became redemptive, to see how that shift occurred in them? Well, we do. And for the author of Lamentations, that shift occurs in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Right there. Now, before we go there, as we just read, the lamenter has just expressed, you know, just the depths of his despair. You remember, I mean, it might come back to you, you ground my teeth, God, into the gravel. My soul is bereft of peace. Um, just totally broken down. I, I've forgotten what happiness is. What's, what's good? I don't know. I can't remember the last time that I was happy. feels like that was a lifetime ago. Maybe that's where you are this morning. The mentor goes on to say that his endurance has perished. I've got nothing left. No fuel in my tank. Nothing left to give here. I'm empty. And he says, my hope from the Lord has perished. My hope in God has died. Have you ever been there? Losing hope in God is perhaps one of the darkest places in one's spiritual journey, and yet many believers would say that losing hope in God was a critical part of their story. And if you can believe it, if you can hear it, God brought you to that place of losing hope in him. Verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness. That's God, right? God has brought me into darkness with absolutely not even a shred of light. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. My hope has died from the Lord. You wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. How many of y'all have been in seasons like this where you feel like all your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, right? Nothing can get through, and you feel like God has insulated himself against your prayers, wrapped himself in this, this cloud that it can't penetrate. And all you feel is the night. All you feel is the darkness without any light, and you feel hopeless before him. Gerald May, the Christian psychiatrist, once wrote, when we cannot chart our own course, we become vulnerable to God's protection. And the darkness becomes a guiding night a night more kindly than the dawn. That, that walled-in space without any light where you're, you just feel, you don't feel an inkling of God's presence, that he shut himself out from you. That's actually a guiding night, showing you the depths of your need, bringing you to a place of desolation where God and only God will suffice for you. And it's actually a kind night, in that way. Someday, I, I think I'll share a little bit about a dark night of the soul that I went through. Um, it lasted for several years, and during that time, I was losing my trust in God. 
only to realize that my trust was never firmly in him to begin with. And I had to lose my hope in God in order to see how far I had drifted from him. Because my trust was in a God that I could define, a God that I could reconcile to myself, a God that Gabriel could worship, a God that I could bring down to my cold, levelized scrutiny and tell him who he needs to be to me. More than anything, I needed to lose my hope in this God in order to return to the Lord. Because God defines Gabriel, not the other way around. The book of Lamentations is a testament to the fact that sometimes the best thing that can happen to an idolatrous person like myself is for them to lose their hope in God in order to call to mind what God is really like, which is what happens in the next few verses. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Therefore, I call to mind, and therefore, I have hope. He calls to mind something. We'll get there in a second. And that gives him hope. The, the Hebrew phrase is, is literally return to mind, bringing back things that have been known before. He, he brings his mind back to familiar places. His grief was so acute that before this, he couldn't feel anything but his own pain, right? And maybe you've been there. Maybe that's, maybe that's where you are right now. I don't know. I don't know where you guys are this morning. Some of you, I imagine, might be there. The lamenter's pain has, has just been so raw that for a while, he couldn't feel anything else, right? Um, and we need time and space to grieve when our pain and loss has been great. Lamentations gives a lot of space to grieving. In fact, many people who read the book would say it gives too much space to grieving. Like, I could do with a little less grief in the book of Lamentations. Um, but it does. Grief is part of life in a fallen world. And a failure to recognize our grief is a failure to recognize the depth of our own pain and loss. There are also waves of grief. Many people experience grief in this way. And although there's a turning point in chapter 3, a new wave of grief returns before the end of the chapter and then continues on into chapter 4. But here in Lamentations, it's time to call to mind, to return to mind who God is. Verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This is what he's returning to mind. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning, for his compassions never come to an end. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The mentor is returning to mind the familiar places of God's love, his compassions, mercies, his faithfulness to him, and returning to mind the truth that he had nearly forgotten in all his loss, which is that the Lord is my portion. I'm, I've literally lost everything. And if you know how how thorough the desolation of Jerusalem was, but I've literally lost everything, but the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Unless you think that it's, you know, all roses from here, go ahead and read chapter 4. Um, and when you do, you'll see that he's not done lamenting, right? 
There's still, he's still processing more pain, more loss, more grief. So what's the point in chapter 3 then, right? I mean, what's, I mean it, how long is it going to take for him to, to heal and get on with it? What's the point in chapter 3 if he hasn't dried his tears and moved on with life? We're tempted to say. Well, the point is that before he mourned without hope. From here on, he will grieve in hope. It's a shift of perspective that changes everything. But I see these verses as a confession of trust. Um, Why? Because God's compassions are new every morning is what's said during a time when his life and the lives of everybody around him are still awful. I mean, in in verse 4, he uses poetic language to say that his body's in starvation mode. (laughs) The city's still in ashes. Things are not good. And yet, he, in trust, says that God's compassion rose over me this morning. Right? I used to read Lamentations 3.23, your mercies are new every morning, as sunshine 3.23. His mercies are new every morning as I greet the Lord with a cup of coffee. (laughs) The house is still and calm. The kids are asleep. No! No! The person who wrote this didn't wake up in his quiet suburban household, right? The person who wrote this expressed in a statement of, in, in his agony, that God's compassions are new this morning, right now, in the height of my brokenness. The city is still in ruins, and my soul is still shattered. That's the person who's saying his compassions are new every morning. He's on a journey to healing, as is the people. Trusting, the Lord's my portion. Trusting, great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. His, his mercies are not this thing from a distant past, but with me in my present pain. And even though I'm a great sinner, God's never stopped loving me. That's what he's saying. And returning that to mind, it changes things. It changes things. Some of you are here today and you're grieving. Others of you have been healed. Some of you might experience a new wave of grief in the future. I don't know. The message of Lamentations to you is this. To return to mind. God's great love for you. His compassions over you. His great faithfulness over you. Maybe you've known loss and disappointment. Maybe you've experienced betrayal. You've broken God's law. And that your own soul would come to say, the Lord's my portion. Therefore, I have hope. I mean, it's for the lamenter, it's just that, I hate to make it simplistic, but if the God of the universe is your portion, you've got reason to hope. That's not to trivialize pain, but it actually is that simple. If the God of the universe is your portion, you've got reason to hope, right? And again, it's not to to minimize pain. Pain's real. But if the God of the universe is your portion, you've got reason to hope. Therefore, I will hope in him. That's not cheap hope. That's an anchor But God will use 
this recalling. So do it. Why don't you do it? Recall your belovedness. That's actually where he begins. Your, your steadfast love has never ended. Recalling his belovedness. Does God love you really well? He does, doesn't he? Return to your belovedness before the Lord in your mind. Go back there. God uses pain. He uses loss. But in that, God's not manipulative. He's not, God's not insecure like we are. So God's not threatened by a satisfying career if you have one. He's not threatened by emotionally healthy friendships in your life. God's not threatened by loving marriages in this room. Nor does God hate all your hobbies. Let's be clear. God's not insecure. God can let you have good and beautiful things in your life. But he is after your hearts. My brother Caleb leans in each night to his kids as he's laying them down and says, God's after your hearts. My friends, God's after your hearts. There's this beautiful phrase in Ecclesiastes, and I don't know if you, maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, I feel just like I've been driven away. Maybe through your own sins, or sins done to you. And there's this beautiful phrase in Ecclesiastes that says, this is God, it says, he seeks what has been driven away. Ecclesiastes 13, 15. That phrase just, just hit me this week, just jumped out of the Bible, out of the pages. He seeks what has been driven away. That phrase could almost stand as a summary statement of the Bible itself. And if need be, God will cover us in a shroud of darkness. He'll wall us in and deprive us of any light at all. And he will bring us to these dark nights of the soul at times where it feels like all your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. God's insulated himself against you. And in reality, it's like God has brought you into a dark room to develop you. Now, I realize we live in the digital age, and so this analogy is going to fall flat. But it used to be the case that photo negatives, which didn't look very good on their own, were brought into a dark room with limited light and chemical processing to develop the pictures. Guys, God's got a dark room. Just read the book of Job or Psalms of Lament or, of course, the book of, Ecle of Lamentations. Um, but know this. God seeks what has been driven away. You can bank on that. This passage in Lamentations is about hopelessness, the depths of hope. My hope has died to restored hope in God. And I want us to kind of take this conversation and, and put it into our time, which is the 21st century, by the way, and ask, how did these ideas of hope and meaning and hopelessness uh, sound in the ears of people who you bump shoulders with? And in your own ears, because we imbibe a lot of the messaging of our culture. So, today we're talking about pain and hope. How does the world talk about this? Um, before I go there, I want to actually just say one thing, which is that people even today in the 21st century who are living in, a, in or coming out of a war zone will resonate really quickly, identify really quickly with the context of Lamentations, which is people coming out of a war zone. Um, I think of, you know, 
the Syrian civil war of recent history, and just the massive uh, death, suffering, hunger, displacement of peoples uh, that was experienced there. Um, we moderners experience uh, in developed nations <laughs> hopelessness in a, in a pretty different way. We didn't see our children murdered in front of us, or none of us, I don't think, know women who are so malnourished that they can't produce breast milk for their babies, which is the context in Lamentations when you read the book. But it, it is the experience of people living right now in the world. But those of us living in nations like America experience hopelessness in, in a different way. Um, and I think we've probably forgotten how much easier our lives have been made um, by modern technology and the conveniences that have been afforded to us. Um, this is a picture uh, that I've used to, uh, for our you know, sermon series. And um, anyway, I was hanging out with my friend Zach Boringkamp uh, about two months ago, and he has this AI software program that generates art. It's pretty amazing. You just put in a few inputs, and it spits out art, just generates it, original art. Um, and so I was like, I was just blown away by it. And I said, dude, I gotta come up with an image for the next sermon series at Fullness. Could we create one for a lamentation series? And he's like, yeah, dude. So we put in, I think it was like ancient um, Jerusalem, ruins, ground eye view, light, dark, hope, and it spit out this image in 30 seconds. And three more. I don't know how many hours it would take a human to do this. <laughs> Right? We're increasingly coming into a world of automation and, and machine learning, and um, it's unbelievable what the, con the conveniences that are being afforded to us all the time. By the way, this is for fun. Jack Williams, I don't know if he's here today. Jack, thank you so much. Sent me this picture this week. Uh, what you see next is going to be what happens when you tell AI to give me a picture of Jesus flipping tables. So it does what it thinks you want. you got to be specific. <laughs> but we do experience hopelessness in our time, right? Uh, depression, suicide are at an all-time high, especially in developed countries with AI. Right? We got it worse. In 2018, the UK approved the first ever, get this, Minister of Loneliness, a governmental post to stem the epidemic of loneliness felt in so many of our digital societies like our own. So let's talk about how, how is hope and meaning uh, being talked about in uh, our time, in our secular culture. Well, I would say, you know, we could first begin with what I'll just call secular pessimism. And a, sec a secular pessimism is going to say, hope is foolish, wishful thinking. There's no meaning in the universe, Right? So basically, we live in a meaningless universe, and you can hope if you want, go for it. It's, it's wishful thinking, though. Then you've got what we could call secular optimism, which is going to say, well, sure, life is meaningless, but I can assign meaning to my experiences and therefore hope to my future. So sure, there's no objective reality. There's no value in the universe. It's just random. Um, just as I am and everything else is, but if, as an act of the will to help me cope with a meaningless universe, I can assign meaning and value to experiences in my life. 
Then you have what we could call secular humanism. And notice the first two are individualistic, right? The, the person saying, I don't think there's any value out there, and so I'm just going to be a pessimist about it. The other person says, well, yeah, there's no value, but I'm going to rise up and make believe that there is. Um, humanism is more collective in its approach, less individualistic. And so it's going to say, hope and meaning is found in the love that we share with others, right? So you, there, is, there is hope. There is meaning in the universe, and that's this thing called love. There's something almost, almost religious about the way humanism thinks about love, almost like there's something transcendent, and we call it love. We can't explain it. And if you get that, if you can get it and hold on to it for dear life, if you can cling on to that, you can make it in this world. Then you have Christian humanism, which basically says this, hope and meaning is found in the love that we share with others. <laughs> if there's an echo in the room, you're right, there is. Christian humanism is, now sure, there might be a little Jesus lingo thrown in there, a few Bible verses for good measure sprinkled on top, but it's not saying anything different. There might be this, this concept of, of a deity, and it's usually pluralistic, so your God's as good as mine, but uh, I kind of tend to like the Christian gods. That's who I'm going with. But at the end of the day, it's, only, it's saying this. It's saying what secular humanism is saying, which is that hope and meaning is found in the love that we share with others. And then you have what I'm just going to call Christianity, which says the world is filled with purpose and meaning, although it often remains mysterious and delusive to us. Hope is found in relationship with God among his people because of God's present redemption and final redemption. Hope is found in relationship, covenant, relationship with God among his people. It's still collective. It's not individualistic. But it's relationship with God where the meaning is found, right? Um, there's a movie that came out uh, a number of years ago called Interstellar. You know, I try to put a statute of limitations on movies. You've had time to see this one. I'm going to ruin it. So um, the premise of Interstellar is basically that the world through our neglect and abuse and exploitation is not sustainable for human life for much longer, and so we've got to find another place for the human species to uh, continue. And so there's this search into uh, deep space to find uh, another planet where humanity can start again, kind of a new Adam and Eve kind of thing. And so... Uh, I could say more, maybe I'll just say that. It's, it's kind of resigned pessimism and despair is the setting. And the way it deals that pessimism is secular humanism. So, with that said, let's watch this uh, video. Hey, I love you forever. You hear me? I love you forever. And I'm coming back. I know you're going to get this message. Professor Brands assured me that you're going to get it to you. Know that I love you. Love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. 
I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. All of this is one little girl's bedroom every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. That's why I'm here. I'm gonna find a way to tell Murph, just like I found this moment. How The love, Tar's love. Love, Tar's love. All right, so Interstellar, it's actually a really enjoyable movie. If you haven't seen it, I'd say go watch it. Um, Interstellar is an attempt to, it, it is a true science fiction movie, if ever there was one, because it's really trying to consider how might there be a scientific explanation of love. Um, and it's this grasping, I see it as this grasping, this ache within the human soul to say, we know there's something transcendent about this thing called love. And I think it is actually a hook into the souls of humanity. Um, that we can't quite explain away. Like she says, we love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? Um, there's something about love that just, it, it, it grips the human soul across the world, across the globe, no matter the culture. Um, and there's this longing to find hope and meaning in that alone. But of course, this, the way that's expressed is just within human connection. Love between fathers and daughters, between husbands and spouses and friends and, and people. Um, let me put this back up just to kind of have it before your mind again. I finished a book last week written by a Christian humanist um, named Mark Iaconelli. Uh, the book's called um, Between the Listening and the Telling, How Stories Can Save Us. And it was a, it's a really engaging book, well-written and I was moved in, in many times reading just the stories. It's got so many beautiful stories of humanity. I mean, a, a story of um, uh, uh, an immigrant family torn apart when the father is deported, of uh, people overcoming racial prejudice, of communities destroyed by school gun violence that came together and healed, and stories of betrayal and life after betrayal, and stories of friendship and acceptance and um, stories of, of brokenness and failure and struggle, stories of um, bitterness, stories of um, just the pain and struggles of humanity. And in this, uh, when we hear the stories of humanity, you and I become more empathetic. It's actually just true. Slower to make assumptions about people. And Quicker to see that at the end of the day, um, they, whoever the they are, are not so different from the we. Um, and that tribalism exists when the only stories we hear or the only stories we appreciate are the stories told in our own tribe. Yeconelli writes, the antidote to despair is relationship. And the point of the book in many ways is that all of us long for connection. And I think Adam longed for connection, human connection. And God affirms that longing in saying, it is not good for a man to be alone, and brings Eve to him. Uh, Mark Iaconelli writes this. 
Every act of love brings hope. Every act of love ushers the new world into the present. Every act of love bridges alienation, brings comfort to our fears, makes space for hope. We need stories to help us recall the things we've all forgotten, that we are intimately interrelated, that our home is in one another, that peace is found within one another. The homecoming we've been longing for has been here among and within us all along. But if God is real, then it cannot be that the peace I most need is found in you. If there is a creator, then we are creatures. And if we're creatures, then it cannot be that the homecoming we seek is found in humanity. If you're a creature, then your true home is in God. In other words, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. A portion, it's an allotment. Imagine an inheritance portioned out among children or portions of food on plates. If the God of the universe is your portion, you've got enough reason to hope. Full stop. So please do not believe the lie of humanism. Whether secular or so-called Christian humanism. And this is not to say that we don't need human connection. We do. Adam did. The love of another human, although always imperfect, is a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. So don't hear, don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. But you and I have got to be clear about something that has always been true. The author of Lamentations is telling us to recall something very different than Mark Iaconelli is telling us to recall. It's all well and good to recall our common humanity. It is. But the author of Lamentations isn't interested in swapping stories with the Philistines who've been equally ravaged by the Babylonians in order to find hope. For the author of Lamentations, the turning point in the book occurs when he recalls God's character, his love, his compassions, his faithfulness. That's the turning point. Let's read it again. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let me go invite the worship team up. And if I can also go and invite prayer ministry teams up as well, I want to give you a chance to receive prayer this morning as I come bring this to a close. If you would like prayer, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, a uh, number of years ago, was meeting um, with someone, as a high school girl who was struggling with her faith. And in many ways, she was struggling with uh, her social standing in her high school setting. Um, and Tim Keller tried to encourage her to see her identity in Christ. And she says, well, what good is that if you're not popular? 
And we kind of smile at that, but at the end of the day, we're not any different. If it's, if it's not high school popularity for you, it's probably praise of man in your workplace, which is almost the exact same thing, or whatever it may be. We're all on a journey of learning to say, the Lord is my portion. We're all on that journey, that he is enough. Can we just say that? He is enough. That your identity is in Christ, and let's let our identity in Christ define us. We are a people alive with hope. That's who we are. And, and yet we go through traumatic experiences in life, for we feel maybe even that our hope in God has died. That's okay. God is really good at resurrecting people who have even lost hope in him. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. He'll do that too. You're not too far ever. He seeks what has been driven away. But maybe you're here today and you're somewhere, you'd say, in the middle of Lamentations chapter 1. You're not in chapter 3. Uh, the pain is just too great. And that's okay too. Maybe you're saying, my soul is just bereft of peace. I can't remember the last time that I felt happy. I've forgotten what happiness is. Um, if that's you today, then I just want to say, come receive prayer. Again, prayer ministry teams, please go ahead and come up. Or maybe you're here today and you're saying, um, you know, I've just been dizzied. I've just been distracted by the cares of life or the pleasures of life. And I need to come back to a place where I recognize the Lord is my portion. If that's you today, come receive prayer. And with that, let's go back into worship.